1: where we explore matters of the Spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for tuning in to Spirit Matters, the reboot of the podcast I co-hosted with Dennis Ramundi for seven years that many of you are fans of, I'm sure. Uh, And that archive, by the way, still lives on. So um, if you're unfamiliar with the um, history of Spirit Matters, go to spiritmatterstalk.com or the YouTube channel of the same name and you'll find about 300 interviews with uh, extraordinary people all free. and so uh, that archive will live on. In this new version, uh, we will be continuing the legacy of, con- excuse me, conversations with a uh, diverse range of spiritual teachers and leaders to uh, help you along your own spiritual path. And today I'm delighted to have with us Gayatri Narain, she is a spiritual educator, writer, and speaker, a senior teacher of the Brahma Kumaris World Spiritual University, a longtime practitioner of Raj Yoga meditation, and uh, since 1980, the representative of the Brahma Kumaris at the United Nations in New York. Her current focus is on the UN Sustainable, goal, sustainable Development Goals. Welcome, Gayatri. Good Thank to have you. you. Uh,
2: it's lovely to be here.
1: Um, tell us a little about your own spiritual history. Uh, two things uh, spring out one, that you're of Indian descent, and but born in Guyana. Um, and I've discovered that there was a fairly large Indian or Hindu population in Guyana. Uh, um, That's interesting in itself. Uh, You currently are in New York, Uh, but many of our listeners or probably most of our listeners are not familiar with the Brahma Kumaris. So tell us how you came uh, in your development to the Brahma Kumaris, and then we'll segue into what what the BK is. Well, my
2: life with the Brahma Kumaris is quite um, interesting because it holds a trajectory um, that would be a beginning, a middle, and let's see where it goes beyond. (laughs) But because spirituality was never part of my life um, growing up, when I met the Brahma Kumaris, I was uh, just about 20 years old, and at that time, I don't think I was seeking anything in life. I had a very comfortable life. I thought I was peaceful. I basically believed in nonviolence. I was happy, and I was content. I never felt I needed more, um, perhaps that attributes to my non ambitious nature. I never go in pursuit (laughs) of something. And so when uh, the sister, actually, she, um, her name is Sister Jainty. She was stationed in the UK, London. It was the year 1975, when the UN had declared that year as the International Year of Woman. So one of the Hindu priests in Guyana, was visiting England where his um, son I think lived and he created what was called a Hindu temple. And he was there, um, you know, running that temple with his son and would make periodic visits. And he invited Sister Jayanti to speak. And then he said to her, why don't you come to Guyana and talk to the women there And create in them an interest of leadership that was going to be connected to more their spirit of leadership, more of something they have to offer, but perhaps doesn't know how to offer it because leadership was very and still is positional. But is there another way of looking at leadership? So she came, she accepted the invitation and she came. That priest was very close to my parents. And so when it was time to meet her and greet her and bring her from the airport to Georgetown, um, he called on my mother to do that. So my mother went very early in the morning at 4 a.m. and she met with Sister Jayanti, brought her to our home, which was central Georgetown. But something interesting happened when Sister Janity entered our household. She entered at four or so in the morning. She um, was sitting there with my parents, my mother and father, everybody else was sleeping because nobody wakes up at four in my household anyway during those days. And then there was a phone call that came through and uh, the phone call was not such a nice uh, call because my aunt called to say, that my cousin just had a road accident and basically left the body. Mm -hmm. And so we were getting this news at the time this spiritual um, sister was in our home, but it became the beginning of a trajectory for all of us because what aroused, what got aroused inside of our souls, all of us, not just me, but I have, uh, you know, there's six siblings and of course my parents, was what is the meaning of death? What happens when death occurs? And I think that was the entry point into understanding the deeper spiritual aspects. It may seem tragic, which it was, but it opened a whole new uh, world of exploration of her answering questions that we had that went beyond just losing the person, but what happens to the person they on.
1: And that was so the that beginning was, of your involvement with Brahma Kumaris.
2: That was the beginning of my interest in spirituality Mm -hmm. And that interest got connected to the Brahma Kumaris because the one who was answering my questions was a member of the Brahma Kumaris. So then I pursued spirituality through the study of Raj Yoga, which is basically a study that focuses on what is the soul, what is the soul's connection to a source, the supreme soul. And understanding the drama of life, which is which includes the law of karma, action, interaction, and reactions, and of course the network of relationships that um, is an intricate part of understanding the law of action.
1: Now, when you say Raj Yoga and some. Uh concepts like karma, people think, well, that's standard Hinduism. So tell us about the Brahma Kumaris uh, in particular. And uh, I would think that scholars would uh, call the Brahma Kumaris uh, in the category of a new religious movement or a new religion or something like that, because relatively recent development. Tell us uh, about it and Uh, how it fits in the diversity of uh, India's (laughs) spiritual landscape.
2: Of course, Raj Yoga is very much um, a term used, particularly in the Gita, um, uh, which is a Hindu scripture, and it really specifies a conversation between God and a human being. Um, on the battlefield um, of, of fighting of violence and then teaching this human being how to gain victory. So many people put Raj Yoga within the context of the Gita and, of course, Raj Yoga within the context of how it was introduced in the West, you know, and the whole life of Yogananda. And as I am talking to you, Yogananda is very much Well, basically... and
1: Vivekananda prior to him, whose book, Raj Yoga, was still a very uh, important text.
2: That's right. But I think Yogananda is the one that made it really popular, mm-hmm. I suppose, like mm-hmm. the Beatles made meditation popular mm-hmm. And so I feel that um, within the landscape of how the Brahma Kumaris um, would like to see themselves and would like others to see them is the landscape of spirituality. And that's why we are called a spiritual university, university not academic, but a university of lifelong learning and therefore a university of life. The word religion is an interesting term because according to the Brahma Kumaris and according to what we inculcate as the teachings of our founder, which I'll get into a little bit, is the word is dharma. And dharma is not an organized religion. Dharma uh, uh, describes the principles of life. Just as you have the laws of nature and nature, Mother Nature, operates according to those natural laws, Dharma for us determines natural spiritual principles that we are called upon as human beings, embodied beings, which means souls in bodies, um, to live by. And when these principles get violated, then they lead to the things that we are facing, the crisis of life and all the other um, areas of life that rather than bring us peace, happiness, joy, and the things that are intrinsic to the soul, to life, um, we went against those things. And so we are living in uh, the domain of sorrow. We're living, as it says, in a cottage, a trapped cottage of sorrow. And of course, that's another part of uh, the dharma that we have to face. One is the dharma of the natural laws or the natural principles of life. And when that those uh, principles are violated, what is left of human life and what is it that human life is all about and what is it we human beings have to face. Now, within the understanding of dharma, we have, it's like a key. It's like you the, the soul opens up itself to an understanding. It's like you turn a key in the understanding of the soul to say, if I understand dharma as principles of life, then it gives me a freedom to change the direction of my own life. And if I can do that, then I can participate in life in a way that I'm determining a destination or a destiny that I would like to have. And this is what, for us, Raj Yoga is all about. It's turning that key in our awareness, connected to the dharmas that God violated, and to the intrinsic ones we have to return to, and then to choose a way of living that would take us to where we want to go, to walk a path that, um, in a way, we have choices on this path. And so we don't become a victim of any sense of a religion because how religion is interpreted in many instances, it's dogma. It is something that you get trapped by. It is something that doesn't open up vistas to see things differently. But that is not so. If I just change the meaning of the word religion and connect it to principles of life, then perhaps I will enter into this landscape of spirituality that the Brahma Kumaris are talking about and say, look, you know, these are about principles. And when I understand the principles, I turn the key in the direction that I want to walk, and it would lead me to where I want to go. Now, having said that, you may be asking me, well, where are you, what's the origins of the um, what you're talking about? And the origins is that in 1936, um, our founder father, who was called Dada Leifraj, was from the Sindh community. That you that is in Pakistan right now. And so um, Hyderabad Sindh in the country of Pakistan now in 1936 existed, but it was in undivided India. Now he was from the Sindhi community and the Sindhi community of course is an interesting community. It's a little bit like the Parsis. It's, it, it's got its personality and it's got its um, identity that does have an impact around the world because the Sindhi community found itself around the world in terms of business. I mean, even in Guyana, though the Indians that came to Guyana, this little country between Venezuela and Brazil um, that is supposed to be South America but a British colony, but it's um, associated with the West Indies. Um, the Sindhi community found itself there and did business. So when I was growing up, I always thought people from India were called Sindhis because that's the people who I saw in Guyana. But then, of course, when you became a little bit more um, astute as to world affairs, you realize, no, they're just a community. So this community he was in, and in 1936, he had a series of revelations. Now, he was born a Hindu. He practiced Hinduism, um, but in, the, um, in 1936, he had these revelations. And the revelations were connected to um, uh, three basic realizations. One was human beings were not just physical entities. They were souls. And these souls were separate from matter and souls were immortal and souls took rebirth and souls live on. If there is going to be a change in the world, a transformation in the world, that transformation had to take place at the level of soul. So there has to be a crossover. There had to be a transformation of consciousness, one from body consciousness to soul consciousness, because the reaffirmation of the faith in the dignity and worth of the human person had to take place at the level of soul consciousness, because intrinsic to souls is the dignity of divinity. And that had to be recaptured. So that was one element of the revelation. The second element of the revelation was about God, that to get the power for this transformation to happen, the souls had to connect to the source, one source, God, and to connect to God as light and to connect to God as a supreme soul, a being of light. And then the third element was to understand the play on this world stage, which is called a drama, and to look at it and the movement of it from a state of order to a state of disorder and returning to a state of order once again but there was a, another element that was that is important to us and that's the element of time that the revelation showed that this time that is in between which is the crossover time from a world which is in a state of chaos to a world which will return to a state of order this was the time that there was the active participation of three elements of god of soul and of time, the drama, the cycle of time and the drama of the world and the activities. And so it was a time of creation. It was a time of sustaining that creation. And it was a time of transformation. And so it is this participatory call. It was a call for souls to participate in this a well-renowned dance of God, dance of creation, the dance of the trinity of creation, sustenance, and transformation. So this is basically um, what the Brahma Kumari's teachings are based on, these revelations. Now, the body of knowledge started to be revealed within the time that India and Pakistan, within the independence of India, and the partition of the two pieces of land, which are now two um, nation states. But it was at that time. Now, Dada Lake Raj's spiritual name is Prajapita Brahma. Now, as Dada Lake Raj, he was a well-renowned jeweler who lived in Hyderabad, Sindh, and owned properties, etc. So at the time of partition, he then um, moved to India, which was, and the first place he went to is Mount Abu, where our headquarters is still. um, In, In Rajasthan,
1: is that correct?
2: In Rajasthan, Mount Abu, Rajasthan. And that's where he established the Brahma Kumaris. But it was very interesting, that period, because one of the revelations that came through to him, and this was revolutionary that even though he was the one through whom the revelations was coming through, it was very important that women played spiritual leadership. And so because he started, you know, encouraging the leadership of women um, to play the role of uh, you know, spiritual, giving the spiritual knowledge, basically as spiritual teachers. Of course, there was an uproar in the Sindhi community <laughs> saying that you are doing something that is totally not just against the religion of women were never considered to be spiritual leaders. They had a place and that was in the home to bear children and to take care of the home. So how can you now make them something other than that? But secondly, how can can you um, not only go against religion, but you go against the social norms and the cultural norms of how women should see themselves. And I thought that that was actually revolutionary what he was doing, but he took a position, he took that stand and he never ever looked back, even though he had a lot of challenges from his own community, which was the Sindhi community. But that is part of the Brahma Kumaris that I think um, is very unique and mm-hmm. is very timely. You're talking about timely, what happened in 1936 in today's world, I think it's very timely because if you look at it and you look at the role of women, it's like half the population, the potential is being suppressed. And so how do you expect a world to be transformed if you suppress half of the world's potential? And I think with the practice of Raj Yoga meditation, which is basically Raja is supreme, Raja is royal, yoga is connection, and that is any soul can have a connection directly to the source without going through any medium. It's a direct connection that is taught here in terms of Raj Yoga. With, of course, the revelations being the teachings of how to do it.
0: Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive.
1: You anticipated my very next question, so I'm going to ask you to elaborate on it. when. You know, in my explorations of all things uh, spiritual that come from India, I came across the Brahma Kumaris, and I remember thinking, they're all it's all women. Uh, there's so many women that I'm running it. And I thought maybe it's a coincidence that I just happened to see uh, the women representatives, but that became uh, a commonplace. And I thought, that's very interesting. So now uh, you've told us that that was the template right from the beginning. It it, it wasn't happenstance that women entered into positions of leadership over time, as we've seen, for example, in uh, much of the uh, modern yoga world, where uh, more women than men are drawn to it and therefore more women enter into positions of leadership. But this was a template that was established by the male founder, which is interesting. And at a time long before what we think of as the uh, women's liberation movement and feminism, uh, long before the emergence of women in leadership positions in uh, institutions in the West, and in a culture that was even more conservative r- with respect to f- women's roles than, than America was at, at the time, 30s, 40s, 50s. So that's, it's fascinating. Uh, did he um, ever say why he, he um, advocated or he declared that women should have leadership positions?
2: Well, it wasn't just uh, a question, I think, of why, as it was um, um, an edict received, like a revelation, mm-hmm. that this was what was needed at this time of transformation in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but what was understood was uh, this term equality. What does equality mean and where does equality start? Because when you look at spiritualities, you are looking at something that goes beyond the limitations that divide us, that defines us, that um, gives us a sense of self. You're going beyond this. So you're looking at what life is and what you're seeing when you're looking at the self and each one has to do that for themselves, of course. But within the the, 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 the backdrop of knowledge, what it's saying that when you look at this aspect of life that is called soul, you are seeing that all human beings are born in a way spiritually free and equal, and according to the Human Rights Declaration, which is going to be celebrating its 75th anniversary this year, the number one article states it, all human beings are born free and equal, endowed with reason and conscience. So when you're looking at soul consciousness, that's what you're seeing. So equality and freedom, actually we are born with that but the aspect of why women was that when women realize this because they had this part of them have been suppressed for such a long time when it gets released when it get, when it's unleashed what comes with it is a loving kindness and compassion because that part of the soul which is called like the feminine quality of the soul that was not given expression in the way that would um, bring about the things that were required for the world to transform and so you you put life in the hands of a woman And you would see the way that she would look at things would perhaps be a little bit different than the way a man would look at things. So you say to her, okay, here the world is starving, for instance, there is hunger in the world, and there are 8 billion people that you have to feed. The tendency of this loving care and compassion will be okay, you know, how can I feed everyone with what exists? So there is this element that was needed that women had a natural tendency to, but was suppressed only to the household and not to looking at the world with that vision. But the other thing about um, women was that uh, it was connected to uh, the power of God, and I know that you have done a lot of study in the, um, in the uh, you know the philosophy of India. So you would relate to this word, and it is called Shiv Shakti. Now Shiv is supposed to be, um, you know, a form of God, and we that's what we call God. You know, the form of Shiva. Shiva is the source, the one without an image. It's the supreme soul. And that's why you have a lingam for Shiva, the Shiva lingam. It is shown as a formless being. So the soul, Um, but the power that comes from Shiva is Shakti. Now Shakti is a feminine form of that power. So putting women as spiritual leaders, they will, um, when that Shakti, will um, elevate their awareness to being the instruments that God could play the mother through. And what the world needed now, as our one of our elders would say, Daddy Janki, the world doesn't need leaders. The world needs mothers. Mm-hmm. So these shiv shaktis in the form, the physical form of a woman became the means to deliver the knowledge as instruments to give the experience of God, that being, that soul, that supreme soul, as the mother and father, not the disciplinarian of a father, (laughs) not the punishing father, but the forgiving mother, the nurturing mother, the merciful mother. And also to do that with this Shakti, this um, power that was coming from their connection to God directly into the souls, making them instruments for that. Now, the equality here that God manifested from doing that was anyone looking into the eyes of these instrument uh, mothers, these instrument women, would first of all, see a mother, would first of all, see a sister would want to uphold the dignity of something that got crushed along the way. And so they would want to protect, they would want, it would open up in them um, experiences of standing on higher ground, of being elevated in the way. So that equality of vision, of seeing the other as a legitimate other as seeing the other with a vision of love and respect, of seeing the others with that dignity, is what women as spiritual leaders will bring back to the world. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean that men can't do it. <laughs> I was going to so- make the
1: <laughs> point that there are men in the Brahma Kumaris. Of course,
2: <laughs> there are exemplary men who are doing this in the world. Um, but. Men have always been given that role and have been recognized for that role. So I suppose what was uh, required to, you know, to <coughs> rebalance Asian was to reinforce the role of women so that the balance could be reinstated.
1: Just to be clear to the listeners, um, in the membership of Brahma Kumaris, the, uh, mm-hmm are plenty of men it's not it's not a just a women's organization male students Absolutely. male partners and so forth um you, you've also hinted at the uh, reason uh for one thing i've noticed about the brahma kumaris which is a, a, an orientation towards service and to uh, social activism and, uh uh transformation of, of not just the individual but okay. of the collective. You are involved with uh, the Brahma Kumari's programs with the United Nations. Tell us about that, why the UN, What? how that started, what the programs are trying to accomplish.
2: Well, back in the early 80s, um, when I came to the United States in 1978, and one of the things that happened, there was a, a box of files. And I went through the box of files and I found an application which was unfinished in this box. And the application was to become affiliated to the U.N., so I pulled out the application and I completed it and I took it in talking about the law of karma, whatever actions you do, you tend to get um, the consequence of it. So I did the action of taking the, completing the application and taking the application into the UN and it was to become affiliated to the department, then it was called the Department of Public Information so when I took that application in, and in those days, the security was much, much less. Imagine 1978, 79, very less security. Um, A few months later, we got a reply saying that we were accepted as an, a non-governmental organization to the UN. Now, once uh, it came through that you were accepted At that point, then you had to name a representative. And of course, there's always this default position. And that default position was you become the representative because you have done this application. And it was the beginning of a relationship with the UN that required from us deep reflection. And you just asked the question, you know, why did you become affiliated to the UN? And I think one of the, of course it evolved over the years, but one of the main reasons we became affiliated to the UN that I discovered in those early years was to redefine this meaning of peace. The UN stands for peace, but was peace just an absence of war? What was peace really from a spiritual perspective? And where did peace come from? And so that had been the inquiry we always were in with the United Nations. So we started off in this relationship of looking at peace more as a state of being rather than just an absence of war. Um, and that is why the symbol today at the UN with the gun tied in a knot, you know, the barrel of the gun tied in a knot. It's a universal symbol of nonviolence. And so it was, you know, the the slogan on that by Kofi Annan is ask not for victory, but ask for peace. And so for us, you had to redefine the meaning of peace by looking at a change that was required in the awareness of the human beings, in the awareness of the human soul. So that was our message. And that was what, we brought to everything we did at the UN. Now, being um, a member of the Department of Public Information, all that was required was for us to disseminate what the UN was doing in their international years, what the UN was doing in terms of their programs, to attend briefings, to understand what the UN stood for in relation to the people you are representing, because non-governmental organization means You are representing people on the field and you're taking back the message of the UN to them and you're taking back their concerns to the UN. And that was fine. But then um, another element that we discovered um, was that why we were accepted by the UN were for two reasons. The UN was looking for more organizations that were headquartered in, in in that time was called developing countries. So we were headquartered in India. And secondly, they were looking for organizations whose heads were women. They were looking to, you know, profile more organizations with women leadership. And as you said, we have both men and women, but the administrative heads, the head, the spiritual heads are women And so that was another factor. So obviously, we got very involved in women programs. And today, we actually have a program that's called the Shiv Shakti Leadership, in which we are encouraging the power of women, but from a spiritual base. But then over the years, we also became very much involved in a consultative status with the UN. And that means we upgraded our affiliation with them and became part of the Economic and Social Council. And um, that means that we got more involved in looking at their policies, more involved in doing oral statements and written statements and looking at language in documents, but also looking at how People on the field could take benefit from what the UN was actually doing, because sometimes what the UN does stays at the level of a policy and outside of the government doesn't reach the people. And that is why non-governmental organizations affiliated Mm -hmm. to the UN, our role is to make sure people know what the UN is doing. Our seva at the UN is not just to say here, this is what the UN is doing in terms of a program for you, but we integrate our spiritual expertise in however we are serving people on the field in relation to what the UN has done. So for instance, if we go out, we route to people in terms of peace, and we're celebrating the International Day of Peace at the UN, which we normally do, then we have to say, what is peace? And in the, um, the Constitution of UNESCO, it clearly states, peace begins in the minds of men. You know, if wars begin in the minds of men, then the constructs of peace will have to begin in the minds of men. So we take them right back to the spiritual core. And don't just deal with the symptoms of the problems that you're trying to deal with, but go back to the cause and maybe explore the causes a little bit deeper. If we're talking about human rights declaration, we use the tenet that um, all human beings are born free and equal, endowed with reason and conscience. Understand that in relation to your rights and claim those rights but they're not just there for you to take without a responsibility with every right comes a responsibility so we kind of balance it in that way but finally i think that why we stayed with the u.n over the years and be so much think the u.n is a forum to bring about a lot of things that other institutions in the world perhaps cannot do because it's already all member states, all sovereign states are affiliated to. A lot of, um, it's a meeting place of a lot of diverse non-governmental organization. Here in New York, it is like the world's capital. One of the reasons it's because the UN exists and it's because of what exists in the preamble of the UN Charter. And what the UN stands for is not just peace and succeeding and saving succeeding generations from the scourge of wars, but the UN also stands for reaffirming faith in the dignity and worth of the human person, as well as the fundamental human rights. And so that, for me, is really the point of the UN. It is to reaffirm the dignity and worth of the human person. And that cannot happen without looking at the spiritual identity of all human beings, because that's where the equality stands. That's where the rights emerge from. That's where the dignity is embedded. And if we don't look at the spiritual um, meaning of life, then we just can't do it within a secular world. And so working with the sustainable development goals now, which is my um, uh, focus at the UN, is not just working with the goals and the targets, that is very much results oriented. Um, But to look at the agenda itself that stands for universality and it stands for transformation, And it is within the tenet of leaving no one behind. What does this mean within the context of the results that you want to attain through the goals and targets? Because if you don't work with the seed and the roots of the tree, the the branches and the leaves um, would, uh, would not be nurtured in the right way. And it's just a matter of time for them to wither and dry up again and um, you know, the people's lives are not being um, enriched and the people are not being given the dignity that is deserving for them or their dignity is not being facilitated by the process that is being offered through um, the Sustainable Development Goals agenda. So that's where we stay when we serve at the UN. You may say, but that sounds hard. Well, you know, Working within a technical, legal, and political institution like the UN, there are always cracks that the light would come through, you know, the <laughs> Leonard Cohen song. There's always a crack there that the light would come through. So we keep looking for the cracks, and we keep making sure the cracks get bigger so that more light.
1: <laughs> Shakti energy opening cracks. Um <laughs> The um, One of the uh, articles that are mentioned in your publications, in your particular uh, authored publications, is called The Spiritual Dimensions of Climate Change. This is on everybody's minds now. We're recording this at the beginning of 2023. There's been uh, environmental disasters linked to climate change in the news and news. Um, it's an urgent situation. How do you understand the spiritual dimensions of climate change and um, our responsibilities as individuals?
2: Well, uh, earlier when I was talking about the revelations that the Founder Father had, um, one was of course the source, God, the second was understanding the self, the soul, but the third was understanding mother nature, and our relationship with mother nature. And to understand climate change and to un- is to understand my relationship with mother nature. And the first relationship I actually have, many people say the soul's first relationship is with the mother um, in the womb of the mother when the soul enters the womb, etc. But actually, the soul's first relationship is with its body. And the body is on loan from Mother Nature. So if I were to understand climate change, and I were to understand why not violate the laws of nature, I may not get it if I look at what's in it for me, Um, nature provides for everyone's needs, but not for everyone's greed and all those beautiful things when it comes to why we should protect and change our um, habits and behaviors in relation to nature. I think it would be too broad um, a lens to look at it, because then I would say, well, that's the governments, that's the environmentalists. That's the, um, the institutions, the corporations, they should take care of it. Why me? But if I understand it from the relationship of I, the soul with my body and this body was given to me by nature, then maybe I would look at my diff- the difference that I can make as an individual. And I think that's where it's got to start from. And I think that's where they say education is pivotal. And so if the education starts at the level of what is my responsibility in terms of my relationship to mother nature, then it would have a deeper impact on the individual to make the changes in their habits and in their behaviors in relation to their own bodies and then in relation to the way they operate in the wider um, context of the damage that is being done. Uh, such as you know uh, lessening their carbon footprint as they live their lives. Now the way that's that's the seed of what uh, what we bring to the UN. but we also talk about uh, climate change depends on a change in consciousness. So we put it within the language that is acceptable in these um, forum. And the consciousness that I have will determine the change that I want to make. And so if I have a consciousness of understanding that um the, the, the disaster that we are looking at, or the um the, uh, the, the the challenges that we are facing in terms of climate change, is that I just can't um, take a stance and a position and then change it as time moves and as decisions are made and stuff like that. I can't weaken then my position in relation to what I want to see happens. And I think that without a spiritual practice, understanding that climate change depends on my consciousness and my awareness to be stable and unshakable in wanting what's best for Mother Nature, in wanting to reverse certain things, if I don't stay with that stable and unshakable, as we call it, consciousness in relation to the good of what I'm doing, then as I attend all these conferences, what happens? It could weaken that resolve. But to reaffirm that resolve that yes, if I encourage people to create a relationship with Mother Nature, if I let them see it in a way that they could um, relate to it in a human way, relate to it in a compassionate way, recognizing that there needs to be a change of consciousness, then um, we are not doing our work well, we're not serving well. And so the service is don't shake from your position. Keep that steadiness um, in achieving what you want to achieve, but do it with spiritual resolve. And finally, I think that within our message that we bring to the whole world of climate change is within what we call a spiritual trajectory. That when we're talking about the change of consciousness, we're talking about a change in the awareness that you have, in the change of attitudes that you have, in the change of vision that you have, and in the change of the action that you decide to take. And so using water, is it enough? When I look at it through this trajectory, is it enough to keep my tap running? When I look at, uh, you know, recycling, and even though these are little things that they say maybe, you know, It doesn't matter. Your little bit doesn't matter because ultimately it's being dumped on somebody else's shore. But I think it's the action. It's the pure intention of my action that is carrying the impact. It's the the little habits based on the pure intention that would have the greatest impact. So I think this is the consciousness I should have. Don't let it be weakened by what corporations or the media or whatever is saying to me but keep doing consistently something that is um, determining my relationship and is strengthening my action and is moving me and others and the general impact in a way that would benefit um, this horrible situation that we are facing collectively that is called climate change. And I think that if we're going to say education is the way out, then children from a very young age have got to be taught about their relationship with their bodies because that's the first connection with Mother
1: Nature. Uh, true. we only have a couple of minutes. Um, <clears throat> perhaps you could uh, leave our audience with um, some information about the Brahma Kumaris and how they can learn more about them. Uh, you have a lot on the Brahmakumari website uh, about um, spiritual practices for individuals under the rubric of Raj Yoga. Um, give us uh, some concluding words and uh, point people in the direction of finding out more.
2: Well, let me do my concluding words by first of all saying. Thank you to you, Phil, for having me and um, having me talk about the Brahma Kumaris. Uh, The message I would leave with all of you um, today is to reaffirm your own dignity and worth. Remember that you have a choice and the choice is how I want to see myself in this world and how I want to bring about a change is going to be dependent on how I see myself in the world. How I see myself is the way I'm going to see others. So if I see myself with dignity and worth from a spiritual perspective, I will also look at others through the lens of that dignity and worth. And I would want to uphold that in others. And I would also want to uphold it in Mother Nature. The Brahma Kumaris teaches ways of how to do this. And so if you want to know more about the Brahma Kumaris, visit us on our website at www.brahmakumaris.org. And that will give you information on what we're teaching, how we're serving, and also where we're located around the world. And we're located in about 110 countries.
1: Very good. Thank you very much, Gayatri, for being with us. And now I will uh, say goodbye to our listeners with um, some (laughs) self-serving. Information. Listeners, thank you so much for being with us. Please subscribe to the podcast. Tell your friends about Spirit Matters. Check me out at my website, philipgoldberg.com. Read my books, subscribe to my mailing list, and please send me your suggestions of people we can interview. Let us know uh, what questions you'd like us to raise with our guests and uh, tune in next time and subscribe so you don't miss a show. Thanks again. Thank you, Gayatri. Thank you, listeners. See you next time.